Are you guys looking forward to this episode? Because we're going to talk about uniqueness. You call it difference. uniqueness. I call it differentiation. But whatever. I don't know if there's a difference. Check Let's just out. get into it. Because I got to, as they say in the corporate world, a hard stop. What's your favorite corporate aphorism? I used to like when people would say that they needed to socialize something. Yeah, that's always been a weird one. What about at the end of the day? If someone says at the end of the day, we just got to think outside the box, you better run. Let's double click on that, Troy. What do you mean? <laughs> Brilliant. Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a show about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey. I write the Rebooting newsletter. I'm also the host of a podcast called The Rebooting Show, where every week I talk to media executives who are building sustainable media businesses. And each week I'm joined on this podcast by longtime media executive and investor Troy Young, writer of the People vs. Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer, former head of design at Airbnb and founder of Universal Entities. The internet, by its nature, is made for niches, with the sheer number of choices placing a premium on differentiation to stand out. The way to stand out in a sea of content would seem, I mean, it's obvious, right, to be uniqueness. Yet the side effect of this sea of content was the need, or maybe it was the opportunity, to apply technology to make sense of it all. I mean, after all, AOL and Yahoo could not succeed with a librarian approach. It took algorithmic search, thanks to Google, which emerged from the original search wars victorious, and Facebook then took that to another level with its algorithmic sorting mechanism in which it used the connections that we had to each other in order to surface content that we would find useful or maybe it's just interesting. And soon, the act of making content became not a way to stand out necessarily to other human beings, but to conform to the needs of these algorithms. It's in the title of this podcast. You know, this is the, the week of the Super Bowl, and I'm, I'm hoping that the Eagles do prevail on Sunday. And I think it's telling on this week to remember back to the original algorithmic content creation. And that's when everyone followed the lead of the Huffington Post and chinning up those SEO keyword stuffed articles, and I use that term loosely, to answer the burning question of just what time does the Super Bowl start? And we've seen this time and again, as opportunities that tech provides present themselves, they can get taken away again. Because just yesterday, Microsoft showed off a new AI-powered version of its Bing search engine. But Google readies its own response uh, with BARD. And we're seemingly on the cusp of a new era of digital technology where algorithms take the, the next step and begin to not just sort the content, but to make it themselves. Now, there are those who say and point to Google's answer box and say, there's nothing new here. But I think these people are mostly putting up a front because deep down, and privately, they know that this technology is going to continue to advance and have a deep impact on publishing strategies that were in large part built around filling search engines with very similar content and competing to quote unquote win distribution by gaining the favor of these algorithms. Troy, Alex and I discussed differentiation or uniqueness if you must and what it means in the algorithmic age as we move into this new territory. As always, please do send in your feedback my email is bmorrissey at therebooting.com. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you believe would like it. Troy, what is your take on this? Is differentiation still even possible in media? Of course. Of course it is. Without differentiation, you have nothing. Without uniqueness, you have nothing. And it's more important because you might have been more protected if your distribution was so powerful that you could be relatively speaking, undifferentiated, but we live in a world of, I guess you could call it commoditized distribution. So you better have a product that 
is highly differentiated. I think it's never been more important. And I think it also intersects with what you always talk about, which is ultimately something that's deeply human is that doesn't give it exclusive rights to be differentiated, but something that emerges in a way that is unique from a human makes it different. But it still has to be all the other things to be valuable, right? To be differentiated, you still have to be useful to someone and repeatable. Ideally, it's extendable, recognizable, I think. So all of those things, I just think it's the number one rule in media is that Steve Schwartz, the CEO of Hearst, is a very clear-thinking person. He used to call it uniqueness, and I always liked that term. But at the same time, the entire currents of the business work against that, right? When you were at Hearst, you had centralized news desks, or I forget what you called them, right? And the need for efficiency in the business a lot of times runs against differentiation. Differentiation, uniqueness, whatever you want to call it, that's not very efficient. That involves a lot of friction. Why should various people be covering the same topic or writing about the same thing? Let's just be super efficient about it. We can create it once, tweak it a little bit, and spread it across a bunch of different publications. We've all been through it. I can remember when I was at Adweek, like decade ago, more than a decade ago, we had this centralized news hub. They were like, well, we're just going to create the, the stuff centrally, and then we'll just spit it out. Why don't you just have one publication at that point? Isn't it the case that 10, 20, 30 years ago, differentiation was given to those that had distribution, access to resources and scale, right? Just because you had distribution, you would be unique in the fact that you could distribute the product. So you could have optimized around that, right? Just because you had more access to resources, you could create movies, music, articles that nobody else could right? Because you had just money to do it. And so you would put out a a differentiated product out there. But all of these things have gone away. So therefore, optimizing around scale or distribution isn't as unique today, or it isn't as effective today. Isn't that the case? But isn't it that, that in order to get distribution, your incentives are actually to be very similar to what everyone else is doing? The world doesn't need another recap of whatever the hit TV show is or whatever the successor of the Kardashian is as far as what's getting search traffic. But in order to game the algorithmic systems, you end up having to do what everyone else is doing. I mean, we, we see this all the time. I saw Kyle Chaka, who he should come on. Kyle, if you're listening, you should come on this podcast sometime. He's smart. I think he works with, I met his, I must be a colleague of his, Daisy, who is, yeah. together they've in, endeavored to start that publication, Dirt. Dirt. We should also check it out. Dirt. Kyle also writes for The New Yorker, and, and he's yeah. very attuned with digital culture. And this is what he said. He said, I'll say it. I'll say again what I will doubtlessly be saying a million times in the coming years. Algorithmic feeds have pushed content creators to conform to the acceptable aesthetic and cultural average. AI generation will just automatically produce that average from the start. And the average will entrench itself much faster because more content generation is happening, not just from quote-unquote creators, but from any random user who is probably less interesting or innovative even than an algorithmically popular creator. Average garbage forever is the single commandment of 21st century culture. (laughs) You could either realize this DAO and adapt your consumption habits to make more direct cultural connections or figure it out in two years when it's already too late and everything sucks even more. Kyle did not get the the optimism memo. (laughs) I don't like that. Troy, I want to hear what you want to say about this. Well, I I have an anecdote about it and it relates 
to AI, and there's a broader story there. I think that's pretty pessimistic. I think the first thing I would say is I always thought about the content creation machine as the things we had to do to clear the way, the things we had to do for distribution, and that might have included just being fast, Brian, like whether that was through a central news desk or the creation in the magazine world news you know, and certainly the pace that the internet required us to create, it wasn't a thing. So that was all new muscle. But there was stuff we had to do to feed Google and stuff we had to do to feed social and all that. And then there was meant to be the stuff that that really dimensionalized the brand and differentiated you. And I think you kind of always had to to do both because there was a recognition, certainly from my point of view, at some point that content and content strategy equal distribution. So there were things you just had to do to fill the pipes up. And this idea that it that it does force you to this kind of cultural mean, because that's how you get distribution, I think is just ultimately will suffocate what you're doing in your brand and you'll be nowhere because you're not different and nobody needs you and you're interchangeable with everything else. But a little anecdote about this this morning, I'm obsessed with learning how the mid-journey machine works. Okay. And for those folks that are listening that don't know, Midjourney is a type of generative AI. It's administered and you use it through Discord. So you write your query in Discord to get an image back. And there's all kinds of commands that you can issue to get very uh, specific results. And also you can learn there's guides and there's people that make videos about all of this, but there's words and modifiers that you can use in the prompt to get like crazy levels of of image fidelity back in in any category against kind of any influence type, be it an art type or an individual or any kind of visual genre. So it's it's a really cool tool to play with. And one of the things that I was interested in, in the, the pursuit of differentiation, so I write the email, people versus algorithms, and it's really just, for better or worse, it's just me. It's just an extension of how I think. And I'm not a writer. I, I, I try to do the best I can. Oh, don't, like, don't do that, Troy. Give me a break. No, 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 no. I was not trained as a writer. I'm getting better at it, but it's not, it's not what I do. Okay. And, and I enjoy it, or at least I've learned to enjoy it more than I used to at times. It's absolutely torturous. I want to keep focused on this story, Brian, if you permit me. I, and of so I. one of the things that I always try to do from the beginning is add, I wanted a visual at the top of my email because I thought that was fun and I like visual stuff. And w rather than have a logo on it, like most media brands at the top of a magazine, you have your kind of masthead, right? You have your, whether it's, it says GQ or it says Vogue or L or whatever it says. I wanted to incorporate this little icon that I have, this bear into the image every time. So that gave way once AI was born, that gave way to me being able to generate bears in a particular style. And if you look at the email, you'll see that Lately, I've been coming onto this style, which is kind of like mid-century, illustrated, inspired by a bit of a Wes Anderson vibe, all this kind of stuff. I, I learned to put together a group of modifiers to get the result I wanted. But here's the thing. What I've been trying to do now is train the engine so that I have one character, this particular style of bear. How can I get that particular character repeatedly when a lot of what you get back is random? Or not random, but it varies depending on the kind of whims of how the generative process, statistical generation machine, desalination, blah, blah, blah works. <laughs> I love that because I'm really into, <laughs> I'm really into desalination. Long time listeners will know that. So anyway, guys, 
I'm trying to figure out how to train the AI to be my AI. I'm trying to create a visual system and vocabulary through the AI so I can have my own unique expression that's the PVA expression connected to my voice. And you can think I'm the kind of chubby bear or whatever, but that's, I'm trying to build this. So my point is, is if you learn how to use these tools and you get really good at it, they're a force of differentiation and uniqueness. And if you just plug shit in, like the people at Red Ventures were doing, you're going to get mistakes in a description as to whether you should buy a variable rate or fixed rate, you know, home equity loan. That's not what I'm doing. I'm using it like a paintbrush and I'm trying to have it adhere to a specific idea. And it's really incredible. So back to Kyle, I think that idiots or people that just want to churn out crap will make crap always. But people that want to use this stuff to do things that very much are their own music will find a way to do it. So that's my long rambling desalination talk. I don't love this pessimism around culture because I think it actually doesn't, I don't think it looks at how vibrant culture is today. Like we can't go from a place of saying it's crazy that somebody streaming themselves watching episodes of Friends is culture for some of these kids. And it's crazy of how, how much music there is to choose and how many styles we have right now and how impossible it is to find anything to watch because everything looks so good. And then say that culture is really generic. I think it's Culture has been never has been this br- vibrant. Never was never. music in this. Was music in the sixties like diversified? Everybody fucking listened to the Beatles or trying to sound like the Beatles. TV in the eighties, everything looked the same. Everything looked the same in the nineties. Everything looked like it's the first time that you you can open Spotify now and you can go down rabbit holes where there's like people mixing old types of music and all sorts of crazy shit being made. And AI is just going to allow more people to make things and make them generic, sure, but there'll be enough people who want to stand out. I think there's always that drives to stand out. And at the end of the day, as as people, we just want to feel things. And I'm pretty sure that a thousand words generated by an AI might not make us feel the same than knowing who the writer is at, at behind the newsletter, right? Which is why I think things like, you know, newsletters and podcasts are so popular these days because they feel more real. But I, I think that's crazy to say that culture is genericized now. There's just so much of it. And if you go into any space, you will find a thousand versions of the same thing. But there's a million spaces. Yeah. You know, it's infinite. I think it's also, it's going to fuel the middle. The bland middle is always big. And it's just going to become infinite. And it's going to become useless for it, which is great. It's already mostly useless, but now it'll just become totally useless. And so. Well, and that's my whole thing about Google being in trouble is that they trade in letting you find the middle stuff. And when the middle stuff becomes useless, why even partake in that, right? You just want a cream that floats to the top. And yeah. AI is going to help us find those things too. Because we're looking at AI generation, but AI as an editor or somebody that picks things for me is going to be also a huge way of thinking. But I would be interested in your, your view on the sort of algorithmic impact on design. Because design is a key way of signaling differentiation, always has been. And it seems to me that as algorithms have grown more powerful, there's been this, and, I, and Kyle's actually talked about this, about this blanding, right? I mean, I think you see it in DTC. It's impossible to tell any of these brands apart a lot of times. And you've seen it even in luxury, where signaling is so important there. Is that and everyone's true, like, though? Is logos. That, can, can we, can have you ever seen the logos? Pause? Let me finish. Troy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
All right, all right. Good Lord. No, you see it with the logos of all these luxury brands' logos all begin to look alike. I'm sure you've seen that sort of scatter chart of, you know, it's impossible yeah. to tell the stuff. Apart. It was a Bloomberg and- story. Logo schmogo. Listen, here's the thing. You know, Look at BTC. web design. Web design has all become the same. Well, I mean, I think you should separate web design from kind of u- utility-driven interfaces, but I'll let Alex talk to that. Alex, by the way, did AI do the haircut? <laughs> no. What does it look no. like? Does it look uncanny? Do I have a f- sixth finger coming out of it or something? <laughs> Trey, you always go to people's appearances, I've noticed. No, it looks amazing. I'm, I'm just the- glad that I'm escaping it. I, th- I was ready for you to comment on my sweatshirt, and I, was, I, was, I had a story ready to go for it. I haven't changed my hair in a long time. But you're distracting us, Troy. Okay. Back, yeah. back so- on target. Back on target, apologies. Yeah, you're going to tell uh, me how dumb that point was that I made. Go on. What was the point again? It was about the blanding of design oh, yeah. and whether algorithmic yeah. it's and just, whether I that's- kind of want to back Alex up on this one because I'll give you an example. Sort of DTC, that article got written. Everybody said the logos all look the same, all that stuff. Except in the meantime, we used to have P&G and a couple of other packaged goods companies. Now we have an unbelievable range of people making innovative products. Particular, look at just look at at packaged goods and food products and pantry products. There are so many. For example, beverages, cool beverages that you can drink. We used to have like Coke and Pepsi and. Sprite. Now we have liquid death. Thank God. No, it's yeah. not liquid death. There's all kinds. But, but of even stuff. even liquid death, and there's all kind of stuff like that, and that's. That's but even like in crazy chips and amazing like little health bars and there's so many people making amazing things. Graphic design has existed for probably like at least 10,000 years, right? So nothing is ever truly original. And when you're designing a logo, you're trying to communicate that you're part of a group of products, right? And the logo is never going to be the unique thing. It's all the expression around the logo. Everybody looks at Logan and says, oh, look at that. That logo for Bolt looks like this other logo that also has a Bolt sign. Like, yeah, man, fuck, you You run out of shapes at some point. And, and you try to make it as beautiful as you can, and then you express yourself around it, and that's what makes you unique. You need more than that. Websites all look the same. Yeah, because A, Google forces us to make website look a certain way. B, there are things that are solved problems in UX, like stop reinventing the wheel. Like a search box should be a fucking search box. It's fine. I think that's also part of it. And the expression around that is where you want to make things unique. I think when an interface looks so original, it's usually a sign that it is really immature. And people are still trying to figure out what it is. But at some point, somebody figures out that, hey, if you pull down, it reloads the page. Yeah, let's all use that. Great. Because you know what? I'm going to use more than one website in my life. So it's good if they all look the same. Yeah, no, like, there's... pisses me off. I'm not passionate about this a- at all. I didn't mean to angry you. <laughs> take a walk. It's the first, yeah, it's fine. We could take a break. It's good. No, I'm reminded of, of when all the Josh Topolsky websites that were impossible to use and stuff. <laughs> we're like, oh, this is amazing design. I'm like, this is annoying as shit. It's like really difficult to actually use that stuff. Alex, are you exercising? Because you were at Airbnb when the new logo got uh, yeah. roasted, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, of course. And it looked like- The new logo, know, I, used to, I used to write for Adweek had this ad freak blog. And I was, oh, anytime a new logo came out, I was like, it's going to bank tons of page views, 9,000 comments. You just had to post the yeah, logo. And then everyone would go into the comments and just rip it to shreds. You know, you know what's great about graphic design is that everybody's got a fucking opinion. So- I I remember, I mean, I was in a room and I was like, 
uh, this is all good. I think people are making jokes about it. They will remember it. In a year's time, everybody will have just that memorized the way that logo looks and completely forgotten about the fun that people were having around. Oh, it looks like boobs or it looks like balls and I whatever. I thought it was sure, vagina, yeah. wasn't it? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's why I, I, you know, I told Brian, I said, you know what? The fact that it makes people think about every type of genitalia is genius. <laughs> Nobody's ever made one that is completely uh, across the board here. But People will always have an opinion. That's why it's actually hard to make was something that in that's the, a little Was that bit. in the brief, Alex? <laughs> yeah. No, of course it wasn't. It wasn't in the brief. And I also like shit. Like I, it's one of those things that, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a schoolyard thing. Nobody knows that this kid's name sounds like some word and some kid says it and then all the kids say it, you know, and pile on. Nobody saw it until somebody saw it. And, and then nobody saw it again because these things get easily forgotten. And, and the uniqueness of the Airbnb brand wasn't the logo. It was everything we did around it, including the way the interface worked, including the way we communicate in advertising, including the way we told you when your credit card was declined. Like all of these little moments are, how, are kind of how people interface with the brand. And that's how you make it unique. And now it feels different, right? You know, the cleaning fees. And I feel like Alex has had a kind of Beautiful, beautiful emergence from the sort of production cocoon as a butterfly. And today is really the moment that he fully, fully came out of being the guy Who behind knew? the scenes. Logo talk, logo talk. We should have a new segment, logo talk. Yeah, oh, we should. Could be a spinoff. Great, great. People would yeah. love to come on and just and tear apart logos. Nobody has ever changed a logo and not elicited like a lot of negative reaction. Can you imagine if you had no flag or if you had a different flag for America and then somebody said, Here's the flag rebrand. It's got these lines. It's got these stars. What would the reaction be? Would people love it? South Africa's flag was really well received. It's its new flag when it rebranded. You guys, can we do an exercise here, Brian? Can we can we talk about? Let's just speculate on what we think are some of the great, unique, differentiated media brands of all time. Both both historical, a few historical examples, and new ones. I'd, I'd love to hear what you think are examples of people that through a combination of voice, point of view, format, design, really have differentiated products that are hard to replace. Media brands or cultural brands? Are the Beatles a media brand or is it just the oh, New York God. Times? All right. Let's go to media brands, guys. This yeah. is a show <laughs> about, okay. about, yeah. I don't about media. Do Beatles. Uh, no, we're not doing the Beatles. I'm saying let's put a list together and then we can focus on one. So I'll start with one. Okay. The most obvious of all time is the New Yorker, right? It's a type of writing. It's a level of quality. It's a frequency yeah. it's a style of illustration it is cartoons it's all of that and it hasn't changed much in a very long time and it's probably the most distilled and differentiated certainly magazine media brand of all time yeah i like to use the economist as my example more okay business so let's move from from those two very obvious examples i don't think they're necessarily super obvious because i think the differentiation of a publishing brand i'll just say is if you strip off all of the branding and put it in a Google Doc, and this is me as maybe as a writer, do you know who it is? Like with the New Yorker, you totally know who it is. They have a style beyond putting that stupid umlaut over like cooperate or whatever it's called, diureses. Uh, yeah. Could you do that the, with the your writing at the rebooting, Brian? Can you do it with yours? Because uh, I think there's certain aspects of your style that are very dis distinctive. For example, I try to. Oh, no. right? to me, you're, you're the king of the, of the quip. King of the quip. 
the one, the little metaphor, right? This yeah. week's was, this was a classic Brian Quip. I'll just share it with the audience. Uh, Shamelessness you. is the final moat. What a brilliant <laughs> thing. That uh, was thank Brian. you. Thank you. Like, I appreciate that. I had a Very shitty good. Tammy Faye Baker an analogy. You had that <laughs> golden thing. So good. No, but I think that's always been the test. If you look at, you know, the economists took it to such extremes, right? Because consistency is incredibly important when you want to establish differentiation. And I think one of the challenges in a chaotic everything's in an algorithmic feed is that you disaggregate the entire bundle, which is the brand itself. And you start to look at everything by unit economics and each piece of content is a skew to be optimized. And when you do that, you optimize into being meaningless to some degree because the whole does not cohere at all. And so I think what you're talking about with where publishers have really struggled is you said they've had to do it, right? So they had to feed these pipes. They had to feed these beasts with this undifferentiated, very middling content and think that they could do the differentiated higher end stuff too. And as you have have rightly pointed out, you got to understand how you're going to win. And I think where brands get into trouble is when they try to win on a couple different levels and they're just like literally competing against themselves. And so it would stand to reason then that people would not regard a lot of these brands as quote unquote premium if they also have an SEO chop shop in the back. Yeah, I think those are great points. But can you answer the question, either of you, and listen, permission to go outside of the boundaries of media, but Tell me a great brand that's highly differentiated on any of the kind of dimensions that you've articulated, Brian or Alex, that has emerged in the last decade. Give me one. People used to say- In the last say, decade. Well, last 20 years, let's say. People would say right. Vice was highly differentiated. Yeah, I would have had, said Vice two years ago, yeah. Had a, a certain type of storytelling. They did news in a certain way. I think they were yeah. differentiated, but now- Absolutely. To, to be a good media business, you have to be differentiated and you have to create value that you can track. So, so that's a different argument. But is are there others, Brian? Like there could be small ones, like strategery, differentiated, stratechery. It's a terrible name, but he's admitted that it's a terrible name. Even little email lists, you know, like Benedict Evans has a huge list. He has a very distinctive voice, a way of writing, a way of covering things. Is that a differentiated media brand? What you're highlighting here is that it's inherently easier to be unique if you're at smaller scale and especially if you're an individual because what is more unique than a person right and so mm -hmm. mr beast is mr beast that's who he is he's you know a weirdo that makes youtube videos and people like it i think individual ones are easier i wonder like give me another one me, then. give me an institutional well, one it's less institutional because you want something that's less than 10 years old and i think that's even more than 10 years old but i, th I think the verge in tech news seems to have a tone and seems to have at least kind of created something through its website and its podcast and an audience that feels very specific in tech news and is still very much opinion and personality based. So I kind of find those guys unique in their own way in tech uh, news, at least. I have no answer. And I think that's because I, do, I think the most digital brands that have been created in the last 10 plus years are completely disposable. I mean, we see this time and again, a brand goes away and I don't, it's terrible when, when people lose jobs and stuff like this, but people go on Twitter and they mourn. I can't believe this. This industry is so screwed up. And a week later, nobody cares. And I think <laughs> that's telling. There's Brian's optimism again. <laughs> well, I'm a realist. That's Which is what every pessimist says when they're accused. <laughs> I'm a realist. I just think people suck and will ruin everything all the time. <laughs> <laughs> look, whatever. So I said on the text thread, we all have roles to play. And But no, look at the scorecard, right? Or scoreboard. 
you know, the internet started with great promise. And I think all of us love this idea of niches and uh, an enthusiast's dream and stuff like this. It hasn't really worked. There haven't been a lot of lasting, truly differentiated brands that have been created that are digitally native. It's every time we kind of get stuck in media, things get a little dark because I think media is just oh, yeah, a, a sad story over and over. If you want differentiated and a, a way to look at things optimistically, I think you move into gaming. And I would say one of the massive brands, of course, is Fortnite or something like Roblox. And let me tell you, if Fortnite or Roblox disappeared overnight, what would happen is what happens with a lot of video games, it would get a huge community of people that find some way to rebuild servers and get it to run. There's currently like games that came out in the 90s that are being kept alive by people. There are games like RuneScape, which I don't understand. I think looks like it did when it was launched in 2001, but a huge community of people are still, you know. But so why is that? Because people are invested in it. I think media got the worst part of tech, which was they started obsessing around scale and velocity. So everything had to move fast and quickly. Nothing was built to stand the test of time. And so you create an environment by giving all that stuff to Google where, of course, nobody's loyal to it because I'm just a Google search away from another thing, right? But a commitment in a game, you download it, you install it, you build a community, it has network effect attached to it. You put effort into it, right? Because you upgrade your character or whatever. So these are kind of community building components that create a lot of engagement and create a lot of loyalty. And people have completely different relationships with games than they do with media products. And so I would say that's why maybe things like games or shows on HBO or things that are in inherently like high quality stand the test of time. I think just most of media isn't great. Trey, I think he's coming for your months to moments tagline. I think he speaks the truth. But I had a different realization and I was like, oh my God, I talk about, you know, the importance of niche and media and how you be relevant and the connection to kind of point of view and the people behind it and all that. And then I was just, I was using YouTube yesterday and I realized that all the stuff that we self-important media types used to call media is really just kind of literally like you're shoveling hay into this great big participatory machine. and. If you watch, if you consume media like my son does or the way I was yesterday, you're looking up how to do something or how to get very specific information on YouTube. And what will come up is someone who's dedicated their time and or life to explaining that to you. They're usually from Australia or like the Nordics or something. They do a walkthrough of a game or a walkthrough of a piece of software. Or they, they tell you how to do things. And then they send you to get more information or to connect your Discord account. And they tell you how to kind of connect with Twitch or they say hook your Twitter account up to the machine. And everything is insane. I'm, I'm a little conceptual right now, but everything is insanely participatory. You're doing things. You're active you're making and you're really in the media right and the people that are that you're playing with are, are individuals they're not institutions and they're not even individuals that are like thoughtfully crafting their media brand they're just doing shit they love and making content they're just they're making content as a total extension of who they are as people 
Mm-hmm. And in and and then an article from The Verge or an article from something outside is just like, oh yeah, whatever, put it in. Oh, there's a data point, there's a link. It's not meaningful. There's well, no deep meaning ascribed to a relationship with that fucking media brand. The relationship is what that individual wants to do as an active participant in the internet. And so it's all about interactivity. But it's not like interactivity and, oh, send them down into the comments. The comments don't even matter. It's like I'm active by definition. And so I just think that when I watch people use their machines to participate in the internet, media consumption is the last thing they think about. It's funny that you bring that up because... I don't know if you saw Did this. Did that make was, sense? Did that make any sense? No, that made, that made total yeah. sense. Yeah, absolutely. I would just, perhaps as the pessimist, that since I have my role to play, I think that basically what people are doing, though, is they're not necessarily being, quote unquote, themselves. They're forming a version of themselves in order to feed into the algorithm because that's what the algorithm demands, right? So- This weekend in the Times, there was a really fascinating essay. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. YouTube gave me everything. Then I grew up by this woman, Ellie Mills, and she was a YouTuber from 2012 to 2022 during her teenage years. Uh, At 24, she quit after having accumulated nearly 2 million subscribers on YouTube. And she writes about like how she was presenting this romanticized view of herself that was really just dictated by the endorphin and also monetary rush that came from increasing popularity. But it wasn't based on what she really wanted to do. It was based on what the algorithm demanded. And I think it was a point, Alex, you made earlier when we were discussing the Mr. Beast sort of semi quote unquote controversy over trying to help blind people get an operation, uh, which on the face of it was, you know, ludicrous. And I think it just entered the sort of culture war. You made an interesting point that it was about the packaging, right? Because the packaging of the video, because you have to pack, everything is optimized in these feeds. Yeah. It's that thumbnail where he looks weird. The kid looks weird. It's just like such a creepy thumbnail that, you know, you hate the video just because of the thumbnail without understanding the content. Yeah, no, and and this this woman writes about this. You know, at some point it was like on this treadmill of trying to always get more and more attention and she says, you know, my self-worth had become so intertwined with my career that maintaining it genuinely felt life or death. I was stuck in a never-ending cycle of constantly trying to top myself to remain relevant. YouTube soon became a game of what's the craziest thing you do for attention. My answer legally marry my sister's boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, look, just to be clear, there is a ton of bad behaviors that are incentivized by the algorithm. You know, I think it's a running thread in this podcast, right? We know that the incentives that the algorithm bring up kind of ruin a lot of stuff. It's ruined the internet. Google ruined the web with that. YouTube definitely forces people to create a very specific type of content. But I think that there is so much content that if you only look a little bit, there's so much content that is real and wholesome and just or weird or whatever you want it to be, right? And it's never been better. And I think to base the state of culture and media entirely based on whatever the algorithm feeds you is kind of giving up. 
you're basically saying, oh, well, I just watch what the algorithm shows me. No, man, get on Reddit, look up some list of things that people recommend in a topic that you love, and you will find some amazing things. You just need to put some work into yeah, yeah. it. No, I think that's very servicey. I think, but the reality is most people are uh, lazy and they're content to have, and that's why algorithms are so powerful because they bring it to you. You just open your phone, you just open TikTok, and then it just like comes right at you. You open Facebook or Twitter sure. or whatever. I think people like us tend to be a little elitist and say, well, people are dumb and they don't get the right content. Elitist? I'm a man of the people. What are you talking about? I think people do fine. I think there's just like access to stuff. And if you talk to people, they're all into all sorts of weird shit, you know? I wonder what happens to those kids that grow up consuming media as part of media in a, in a real kind of participatory equation. Do they just read the New York Times when they grow up? And is there a point at which, like the YouTuber you just cited, just sort of say, I'm giving up on this stuff and I'm just going to just gonna read, you know, that, that thing? I'm 46 years old. I didn't grow up as a kid with the internet, but I, I kind of became an adult on the internet. I haven't read a New York Times article in the last six months. If children's behavior patterns were led to adult behavioral patterns, we would have no red wine industry. I think that was <laughs> once said to me. I mean... Yeah, but Alex is the representative man-child in terms of his uh, relationship with technology and media on this mm. podcast. Like last night I was on Discord and I saw that Alex was playing a video game and it was announced in his Discord profile. I never, by the way, interact with Alex on Discord. So he must have, you I guys sent him a Discord? note and he must have gone like, why are you in here with me? Literally, I found him in the basement, in the rec room, playing a fucking game and yeah, I yeah. caught him in there. And it was like, what? What are you doing in here with me? Yeah. He doesn't consume media like us, Brian. He's no, different. I consume media like people consume media now. And you guys are still reading fucking scrolls and saying, why isn't anybody buying that like fucking papyrus newsletter that I create? Okay. <laughs> this is not how people consume media anymore. I, I'm just, Hold I'm, it, I'm just saying that there's nothing wrong with reading the New York Times. It's just there are multiple ways to get information. I find myself pretty up to date without having to ever read the New York Times. I had a subscription for a while. I realized I don't read it. I only play Wordle. So Yeah, but you don't love you don't love to read, admittedly. Right. You you actually want you to, you don't read my newsletter. You just have it you press the play button on it. Yeah. And I have this uh robot read it to me. Yeah. Snoop. But down. okay, so listen, as, wait, 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 wait. Before we okay. go too deep, Brian, you made a great suggestion earlier to me that oh. we play a, a clip from that BBC interview. It was children, BBC interviewed school children in the 1960s, didn't say when. And for them to predict what life was going to be like in, I think, believe it was the year 2000. And I think the kids were pretty prescient in that fear of data and the robots taking over. A lot of the sort of sky is falling talk when it comes to like AI, I think is none of this is new. Let's hear what these kids had to say. I think it'll be, uh, um, people will be regarded more as statistics and as actual people. I don't think it's gonna be so nice. I think sort of all machines everywhere, everyone doing everything for you, you know, you'll get all bored and I don't think it'll be so nice. First of all, there's Computers are taking over now. Computers and automation. And in the year 2000, there just won't, won't be enough jobs to go around. And the only jobs there will be will pe be for people with high HQ, you know, high IQ, who can work computers and such things. And other people are just not going to have jobs. There just aren't going to be jobs for them to have. It's kind of uncanny, though, right? I mean, like, concerns about people just being statistics, check. The concerns about the only people who will be able to, like, get ahead are the people who understand how to manipulate the machines, check. 
And I don't mean that it's like reality. I just mean like the fears that people have of machines taking over and humans being controlled in many ways by machines are natural. They're normal. They've been with us forever. It's always striking when you see how actually smart people were back in those days because we usually see them as relatively ignorant, right? We always see past humans as they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. No, these kids were super like on point. If you ask kids today, it would kind of be like, well, it looks like all those computer jobs are going to go and I got to learn how to become a plumber because that's the job that really pays money. Like, yeah. You know. I had an electrician. He just didn't show up. He knows what's going on. He's whatever. I can show up and not show up. It's great that, you know, being a craftsperson is is kind of becoming a very valid career again. It always was. I think everybody wanted to become an engineer. And I was talking to an engineer yesterday and I was saying, I think there's that whole middle layer of engineers or, you know, people who write data queries in data science, that type of stuff is all going to go away. And so there's a huge middle, like the middle once again, right? Gets, gets. I know all those poor people that were like convinced that they needed to learn to code. So they went to general assembly for six months. It's probably not going to be a good bet. Well, some of those will have learned things that allows them to make something, their ideas real and change the world. But if you were planning to just get a job that got, you got buy-in, that might be a little harder. Troy, you made us play this video. What did you want to say? Well, I wonder what we learned today. What do we ever learn? Learning is a journey. Mr. Moderator, what did we learn today? I think we've learned, I mean, I think the idea of a media brand is anachronistic yeah. in today's age because that is not how people consume content anymore. I think people want to feel something. Troy mentioned participation being so important. I think participation helps you feel something and feel part of something. And which is why that passive media that's done at scale at the velocity, you know, all that stuff's going to be replaced by TikTok. And the rest is going to be stuff that feels much more engaging to its audience and much more focused yes. and unique. It, I think we're coming out of this year of fleeting media impressions because you're feeding machines. And the point that Alex was making about video games, I think was pretty simple, but profound in that there are examples of media when you get out of the sort of bubble of thinking about media as like publishing. People are incredibly loyal to that. Like when you see a lot of publishing brands go away and and a few people on Twitter get upset and then everyone just move on with their lives, like that absolutely would not happen with Roblox. Like I would have nephews in Switzerland that were refusing to go to school. It's a particular type of media, but I think you can always learn from that. And I think what the big thing, I'm not a video gamer, is People are invested in it. And I don't think that a lot of the media products have been put out over the last 20 years, people are invested in. You know, in the entertainment business, really the only people that survive the transition to direct platform relationships with consumers are a small handful, maybe three to five of scaled platform entertainment providers like Netflix, Disney, potentially a couple of others. And we're watching in real time that entire ecosystem where the people that lived in the bundle in the middle, whether it was Showtime or anybody else, just become hollowed out. There were insane profits in that business because you could make a couple of good shows and then against a hundred million cable subscriber universe at a $6 premium on the bundle, you could generate an enormous amount of revenue against your cost base. And those were the good days, right? And so... You're going to have on one end really massive scaled streaming companies. And the gaming side will be similar because it's so complex. The, one of the questions in gaming is whether the threshold of scale comes down as technology improves. But anyway, you'll have those big entertainment companies. And then 
a lot of other people that just make media as, as an extension of who they are. Let's get into good products. I was going to do the obvious this week, and I have not been to Costco in, I think, 20 years. We were driving out to a spot, out to Shelter Island, and I was like, we ought to go to Costco. So we dutifully got in line, got the stupid $60 membership. They tried to upsell me to the $120 membership, all of that. And I got in there, and I was I bought the $1.50 hot dog. And I was like, oh my God, Jill, you spend $15 on a can of salmon at the local whatever, and I can buy eight cans of line-caught salmon for $14.99 at Costco. I was shocked by the utility of the place and also by how happy people seem to be to be working there. And then I ate my body weight in samples. I ate every sample I could walk by and it was really great. They don't have samples in Brooklyn at the local grocery store. But that's not my best product this week. Good product. No, it's not. My good product. I th- no, no. I think that my good product Wait, is did you know? Little- just, just hang on. I just want to say something on Costco. Did you know that Costco has one of the highest employee satisfaction uh, ratings, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, because for they all said they yeah. pay people. Yeah, what they is pay their people secret? and it's generally paying people is one thing, good management is the other. But I think that there's something that you feel it's once again, people want to feel something and you walk into a Costco and feeling that not everybody's miserable, like every single Best Buy that I've walked into or Office Depot, right? Yeah. Makes it feel nice. Yeah, but I wouldn't overthink it. Costco pays $19 an hour in New York. That's $40,000 a year. That's way more than most retail pays. My good product pick is a little indie, Brian. So I'm just going to okay. establish that so you don't to call me out on that. But I, I was thinking that this guy is a good product. His name is Mac DeMarco. And I love Mac DeMarco. He's a sort of fiercely independent, very popular kind of indie icon musician. He's actually from, he grew up in Edmonton. So anybody, any musician that's from Canada usually has a soft spot in my heart. But I listened to him the other day on the How Far Gone podcast, which is kind of a highly indulgent music-oriented podcast. You know about it, Brian. Isn't it How Long Gone? How long gone? How far gone? How long gone? Mac DeMarco's amazing. He's like financially independent. His music is so Mac DeMarco. When you hear it, you know exactly who's playing it. He does what he wants to do. He's sort of like the substack equivalent of a musician. And he caters to a super niche community, but it's big enough to make a great living. He just, for example, released an all-instrumental album, which no one does. He doesn't give a shit what the record company says. He does things because he wants to do. He is totally soup to nuts. Like he produces his stuff. He solders and wires up his amps and keyboards to get the sounds that he wants. And to me, he is the antithesis of corporate rock, the corporate music machine, and is designed for the world we live in. And I love Mac DeMarco. Well, that's inspiring. And truly unique and a representation yeah. of how diverse and interesting culture is today. And a counterpoint to like the masses of artists that are chewed up and spit out by the algorithmic machines that rule the industry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. On that hopeful note, optimistic note, let's wrap it up there. Thanks for listening to the episode. Do us a favor and rate and review the episode wherever you do listen to it. That helps people find it. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Alex and I are using you. <laughs> and the worst part is I would love to be used for some sort of like higher order purpose, but I'm still used for like menial tasks. Like investment bankers are used, but they get paid handsomely to be used. I want to be used like that.